We are starting, though, talking about civic politics. As we know, the civic election taking place on October 15th. And one group says if elected, they would overhaul the policing in the city of Vancouver and bring democratic control back to policing. Well, joining us to talk more about this and what that might look like is Breen Ouellette, a COPE city candidate for a candidate for city council. Breen, thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me on here, Jill. Uh, what specifically do, would you like to see change, or do you think, or is your party promising as far as changes when it comes to policing? Well, one of the things that uh, that has been attempted but hasn't been successful to date uh, would be City Council's 2020 request for the Vancouver Police Department to uh, delineate the line items related to police expenditures on mental health, substance abuse, sex work, homelessness, and poverty. And uh, the reason that the city requested that is they want to find ways to streamline the VPD to take off its plate um, those things which would be better handled by community-led efforts. Um, But uh, in response to that request, the VPD reported uh, that in the previous fiscal year, they had spent a total of $283 on police work related to homelessness. Um, But... By contrast, uh, when uh, BC Director of Police Services Wayne Rideout uh, reversed uh, the budget freeze uh, on April 2022, um, Mr. Rideout claimed in his uh, report that the VPD was spending millions of dollars on police work related to homelessness. So there's this there's this um, disconnect in what we're hearing from a top official of the province versus what we're getting from the police. Uh, and millions of dollars put into community-led initiatives uh, for us would make a lot more sense than the police just simply working to move people from corner to corner and doorway to doorway throughout our city. One of the recommendations in the report that was released that takes a look, well, it was specifically looking at repeat offenders, but uh, it takes a look at crime in general, uh, talks about the downtown east side, uh, talks about... Uh, it. it quotes an outreach worker saying that the downtown east side is completely lawless. And we've heard from people saying that not only in that area, but other parts of downtown Vancouver as well, they no longer feel safe. Does it, does that, how does that kind of work or how does that go along with calls then to, to potentially reduce the budget for police? Well, see, the I mean, the thing is, it's, it's a reduction in the police budget, but it's an increase in the services that will help to uh, make lives better in the downtown east side. So if people are uh, not struggling in the downtown east side as much as they are now, then that will help to um, get people uh, in a more productive life, really, is what it comes down to. Um, You know, uh, one of the things that uh, people think is that, you know, the police are, are... somehow magically going to make the situation disappear. And if that was the case, our police budget, which has hovered around 20, 21% of the total city budget uh, for decades now, uh, it would be having a, a positive effect. That, that is some of the highest spending on a police department of any city in Canada. There are only a few cities that are worse. Um, and yet the situation is getting more dire because the resources we need to address uh, the drug poisoning crisis, the homelessness, 
the mental health issues and the poverty of the downtown east side, those monies have been drying up over the decades. Then is anything working as far as trying to make things better? Because we certainly have numerous agencies that their goal is, at least what their what their stated goal is, is to fix exactly the issues that you just talked about. And I know we talk about that number of a million dollars a day going into various agencies in the downtown east side and nothing changes. In fact, people say it gets worse. So isn't it, it's not only policing that's going to, to magically fix this, but is anything working to make it better right now? Well, some things are working to help, but it's, you know, it's a, it's a Band-Aid on a serious issue. And, you know, one of the things that, um, that you know, we forget about with, with respect to the police is that they have direct coercive violent power over every single one of us. And the, the courts have even officially tolerated lying by the police in the performance of their duties. And we're, when we're talking about more marginalized people, um, they, they don't have the resources to, to, um, to, to push back against that if they're being abused. Whereas, you know, as a lawyer, uh, we're regulated by a provincial regulator. Um, if we step out of line as lawyers, uh, the law society comes in and does a discipline investigation and it can lead to practice restrictions or temporary license suspensions or complete disbarment of the practice of law. And the police don't have that. And the reason I'm bringing it up is there have been a number of high-profile violent cases of the police in the downtown east side and elsewhere in the city. Uh, most recently, Chris Amiot was uh, shot uh, several times with beanbag rounds, and he died as a result. Um, the, the investigation into that is handled by a group that's not um, in a position to really address uh, the way that impacts our, our, uh, our city. And Do you mean it, the IIO? Yeah, and we don't, have, we, don't, we don't have a way to say, this person is a danger to the public, and they're a police officer, and they need to go. What, we need do that. we not have the Office of the Police Complaints Commissioner, though? Those processes have none of the teeth that the law society do. If police were deunionized and regulated the same way that lawyers were, we would see a huge change in public safety just by getting rid of the bad apples. I mean, people always say, oh, it's just a few bad apples. But the whole sentence is a few bad apples can spoil the whole barrel. And we've got good police officers out there who are fighting all the time to do a good job, but they're also at risk uh, with their colleagues who are not. All right. Well, Breen, well, I have to leave it there for today, but thank you so much for joining us and for talking about this on the show today. Appreciate your time. Yeah. Thanks so much for, for ta- tackling this huge issue. Well, we are getting a better idea of why there has been a decline when it comes to physical activity of Canadian children and youth. The 2022 Children and Youth Report Card has just been released. And if you were suspecting that, yes, the pandemic led to less activity, you are correct. And it seems like those activity levels are not back to where they were before. Well, joining me to talk a little bit more about this is Dr. Valerie Carson, Participation Report Card Research Committee member. Member. Dr. Carson, thank you so much for taking some time with us today. Thanks for having me. What specifically do you look at then when taking a look at physical activity of children and youth in Canada? 
Yes, so the report card is a is a year long process where we gather all of the best available evidence in Canada around physical activity in children, and we use that evidence to uh, create 14 grades that form the report card. And what's unique about this year's report card is all of the data that is in the report card has to do with uh, children and youth during COVID-19. And so not a huge surprise, I would imagine, that we're seeing those physical activity levels that, that they dropped during the pandemic. But I, I think it is a bit alarming when we look at how much. So can you walk us through some of the numbers? Yeah, definitely. So um, with our overall physical activity, the grade level went from a D plus to a D. And as you mentioned, we can imagine this when uh, children weren't allowed to play with their friends, when there wasn't any in-person physical education classes, sports and recreational opportunities, all of those things were taken away. It's not a surprise that children's overall physical activity decreased. But we did see some positive things, um, for instance, uh, with active play. So children and youth, as the pandemic went on, started uh, getting outside more, uh, especially with family, and uh, were more active in in that regard uh, than we were seeing actually before the pandemic. Hmm. And so that would have taken the place then of, say, team sports or sports and activity that would have happened, say, at school when everybody went online and things were closed? Exactly. What other areas, I understand too, or I saw a number that the percentage of of youth meeting the um, the moderate to vigorous physical activity recommendation dropped, said 51% pre-pandemic to 37% during the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. So that was a big drop in the physical activity levels and for many of the reasons that I described um, before. And as research has gone on, we've seen that those numbers have gone up now. So more children are starting to get back into some of those organized activities. But we haven't seen a return back to kind of those pre-pandemic levels. And before the pandemic, we were already quite concerned uh, with physical inactivity in children and youth in Canada. And can you talk a bit about that in that we were seeing it decline? Was that the case then before the pandemic hit? Yeah, we have been seeing, we were seeing low levels of physical activity in children use on average across Canada before the pandemic. And uh, we were also seeing that time spent on screens uh, was continuing to be a, a kind of a growing problem uh, in our children and youth. And, and b- both of those things got worse um, through the pandemic. How much physical activity, and I'm guessing it changes with age, but how much uh, activity is the recommended or the, the minimum recommended for children and for youth? Yeah, so the minimum amount for school-age children and youth is uh, at least 60 minutes of this moderate to vigorous physical activity. So this is activity where children would be breathing a little bit heavier, uh, might be sweating a little bit, uh, might have hard time talking through it. So um, really activity where their heart is pumping. And so we would want at least 60 minutes of that each day. 60 minutes. So something like soccer or a similar sport or something that's that's getting you up to that, that heartbeat level or that heart rate? Exactly. And then you mentioned screen time, and I know the report also looks at sedentary behaviors. What are we seeing there as far as the amount of time kids and children and youth are spending on screens? Yes, so we saw that before the pandemic, the grade uh, in our 2020 report card was a D plus, and in our 2022 report card, it was an F. So screens definitely increased during the pandemic, and this grade is actually not related at all to screens associated with schools. 
So this is just leisure time. So this is the screen time that children and youth are spending outside of school hours in their free time. Okay. And what is the, again, I guess the maximum it would be there. How much time is, is considered kind of an okay amount of screen time? Yeah, so we see no more than two hours a day of that recreational screen time. So that wouldn't include screen time related to school. All right. And two hours. So two hours actually, and maybe I'm completely out on this one, but two hours actually seems like a pretty good amount of a, a lot of time. Yeah, absolutely. But um, what we found in the report card is that only 18 percent of kids were getting two hours or less in Canada. Hmm. And what about uh, transportation? I know the report also looked at that as far as if kids are walking to school or riding their bikes to school or are we seeing a more of a shift in that kids are being driven? Yeah, it was really interesting. So, um, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, when schools were shut down, obviously um, there was a decrease in that active transportation to schools. But then as the schools opened up again, uh, parents might have felt kind of less comfortable with their kids being on a bus. And so we did see that active transportation started to increase. So uh, during the pandemic, once school opened up, more kids were uh, riding their bikes or walking to school. Hmm, so that must, I would imagine that's uh, then perhaps a positive or a bit of a silver lining? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What else does the report tell us then? And like you said, we, we had leading up to, and now this is the first time we've really got all of this information, and it comes from during a pandemic, what kids and what families were doing during the pandemic. Does it tell us or does it show us other areas where there is a lot of room for improvement? Yeah, one other thing that's unique about this report card is it really took a look at uh, equity-deserving uh, groups. Uh, so uh, children, youth with disabilities, uh, girls, Indigenous youth, uh, two SLGBTQ+, uh, newcomers, racialized children and youth. So those equity-deserving groups, we took a, a specific look at those groups and we saw, um, we knew before the pandemic that these children and youth were, were getting less physical activity than the average um, population. And we saw during the pandemic that this uh, inequity uh, grew, it got bigger. So these uh, groups of children and youth um, were engaging in less physical activity as well. I would imagine, I don't know if the report looks at this, but does does financial issues uh, come into this as well in that things that uh, take a lot of or, or, or would be a very active things such as hockey and some other sports, they're expensive and, and that can be a barrier for some kids. Yes, absolutely. And so two of the findings that we found were that just even outdoor time um, was more likely with children in higher income families. So that might be related uh, to things like uh, equipment costs, um, or it could be that the neighborhoods um, that, that families lived in. Uh, as well, once uh, start, things started opening up and organized sports started um, being available again, uh, we saw that children from lower income households were less likely to participate in that organized sport. So definitely um, some of the financial strain from the pandemic has, has played a role in it. Does the report have recommendations then or uh, lists uh, ideas or ways that maybe we can get that grade to be a better grade next time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's no easy solution. Uh, it, there's so many stakeholders that can play a role in uh, improving children's physical activity and, and sedentary behavior. So from parents and caregivers, uh, limiting the amount of time children are spending on screens, trying to have screen-free family time, especially uh, getting outdoors as a family uh, in the school settings, just being mindful of how much time children are spending on screens, uh, having active lessons or active breaks, even outdoor uh, classrooms um, with our communities, looking at uh, different recreation facilities that are available uh, and all the way up to government. So 
uh, investments and looking at different policies and programs and infrastructure that can all promote promote a physical activity in children. All right. Very interesting findings. Uh, Dr. Valerie Carson, thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. For the break, I played just a few minutes of the testimony from earlier today. That was current interim chair of Hockey Canada, interim chair of the board of directors, Andrea Skinner, asked, answering questions put to her from MPs. The testimony went on for about a couple of hours earlier today. We also heard from the federal minister in charge of sport saying that there was a lack of transparency and Pascal Saint-Ange still calling for resignations at the top. Well, we wanted to talk a little bit more about this. So joining us now is Laura Robinson, sports journalist, also the author of Crossing the Line, Violence and Sexual Assault in Canada's National Sport. Laura, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for inviting me. I'm curious your thoughts. I don't know if you got to watch or listen to the testimony, but even just some of the quotes that have been publicized from this and what we heard from the interim chair today, one of the other things that Andrea Skinner said was that she felt Hockey Canada has a very good reputation and that it should not be, and the direct quote I believe was, a centerpiece for toxic culture. What, is your, what are your thoughts after hearing that? Yes, I was. I was actually upset that she um, sort of characterized uh, hockey as being the scapegoat for abuse in general and assault in general. You know, I think she made a reference to one of the senators who has just been uh, charged with sexual assault, and as if, oh, well, therefore we're just doing what everyone else is doing. Uh, first of all, as she was reminded by members of the committee, this is about hockey in particular and no one there would ever deny that there that assault sexual assaults don't exist in other places but that was not the um reason for why she was asked to testify first of all uh and then she pretended as if sport other sports had that same kind of what you know toxic culture but they don't you do not find reports of gang sexual assault in um, volleyball, in badminton, in cross-country skiing or swimming. This is something that has happened in in Canadian junior men's hockey. You don't find it in in women's hockey um, for decades and decades and decades. So to me, she very much misrepresented what the very serious problem is. And even if you did, it kind of goes to where she was She was commenting as well that, well, this happens elsewhere. Even if it did happen in other sport, I mean, wouldn't that be reason then other sports should be investigated as well, not to let it go in hockey? Yes, absolutely. And, and I think everyone is calling for uh, a national inquiry into sport in Canada because there's, there is a significant amount of abuse of athletes uh, by people in power, whether that's coaches or other decision people in decision-making capacities. So there's no question that athletes are asking for a national inquiry. However, that's not the same thing as a group of athletes ask, acting mainly like a gang and, uh, to me, very premeditatively um, ensuring that they get a girl or a young woman to a hotel room uh, at, at after which a number of others will show up. That's very, very different. There's 
I would never say there's no abuse in Canadian sport, but this is a particular kind of abuse that hockey continues to pretend um, isn't a, a heinous crime in my mind or an alleged heinous crime. We heard earlier today as well from a conservative a conservative MP who actually read out in the, the Senate hearings uh, some board meetings or minutes from a Hockey Canada board meeting. And there were minutes that... that showed that the board wanted to shift the narrative, that the, the scandal in the days following when it came out that that fund had been used to to defend allegations of sexual assault, that the fund where some registration fees had gone to that fund, that they wanted to shift the narrative and that this should be viewed in a positive manner. What does that say in that their focus wasn't on the the allegations of sexual abuse or the toxic culture? The The focus, it seemed at that point or at that board meeting, was to make sure this is seen as positive, not negative. Yeah, it's hard to imagine what's positive about any of this. And so to imagine that this is how we're going to shift the narrative, uh, I think it shows how much, how very insulated they are uh, from uh, basically a normalized understanding of what is and isn't acceptable. I've got a quote here. Uh, where they were reading, the members of the Heritage Committee were reading from those um, Hockey Canada minutes where they're saying, we're like a family and need to push back hard. Uh, It sounds to me like they really didn't get it. Uh, there was also mention, because this committee meeting or this Senate hearing happening after a Globe and Mail story about a second fund, that there was actually a second fund, according to that story, that was used also to, in, in defense of sexual allegations, of sexual assault allegations. Uh, Andrea Skinner seemed to, to suggest today that that's not what that fund was used for, that it was for something else entirely. But it almost seemed as well that that, that too kind of misses the point of why we're doing this. Yes, and, it, and I, I, need, I think they need to ask a lot more about that, that fund. It's in a trust, and from what I, my notes show, she said that it goes to their uh, member organizations, so Hockey BC or Hockey, uh, Hockey Alberta, etc. But then later on, my notes show that it's, it's spoken about as a um, contributing to the CHL, so the Canadian Hockey League, under which, you know, the Western Hockey League resides, you know, in terms of uh, BC. But the CHL is a private profit-making organization. It's in partnership with Hockey Canada. But when you go on the website of Hockey Canada, you see it's separate from the regular leagues that aren't profit-making leagues, right? Mm -hmm. So I think there needs to be a lot more clarity on who has access to that fund, who has already used it, and again, we need transparency. Uh, which is also what the federal minister uh, called for again uh, today and, and said that the, exactly that, that transparency is, is very necessary here. I uh, wanted to ask you one of the other questions uh, or the answers, I suppose, that's getting a lot of attention was um, Andrea Skinner was asked if you were a teacher, put on a, a, a fictional teaching hat and give a grade to the uh, to Scott Smith. And how is Scott, how is the president of Hockey Canada? How would you grade his uh, his participation or his leadership of the organization. Uh, she paused for a, a few moments, a few seconds, and then she said that he gets an A for his conduct on, on this file. Uh, what are your thoughts on her saying that he deserves an A? 
So I think it's just another indication of that total institution that they live in. So that they, and I know that it must be all encompassing now because there's one scandal after another and one inquiry after another to them. But it appears as if they, they, they don't seem to be able to understand the hockey culture relative to what is considered a healthy, democratic, transparent culture that doesn't cover up allegations of of very serious sexual assault. It seems they miss, that's the piece they miss, that they're able to give an A. Do you think this is at least getting more conversation about this? And I'm, I'm because I mean you've written about this in the past and have studied this and have researched this. These allegations or these types of allegations are not new. Maybe not the exact details of of the one that led to to these hearings and these conversations, but the types of allegations are not new. Do you think that it's at least shifting a little bit how we are dealing with them? I think that's a very positive thing. I always, you know, think that transparency is always good for democracy and always good for a, a, a public social conversation about things that have in the past been secret and been taboo. Uh, so that is that is a good point. Now, one other thing Ms. Skinner said is that, you know, until this 2018 allegation arose that she didn't know about any um, abuse allegations in junior hockey, which is uh, very difficult to understand that you could know hockey as well as you hope uh, the chair of Hockey Canada knows hockey and not know that there's been several cases that have gone that were in which charges have been laid, um, very few with convictions, but several cases with charges laid uh, about gang uh, alleged gang sexual assault by junior hockey players. So again, where has she been? Yeah, no, uh, good question. And I think that was a question a lot of the MPs had today and uh, people listening and watching that testimony. Uh, Laura, we'll leave it there for this afternoon, but thank you so much for joining us and for talking more about this. Thank you for inviting me. Well, just before the break, we heard a little bit of the story of former Vancouver Canuck Aaron Volpatti, and we're talking to him today because later this month, his book, Fighter, Defying the NHL Odds, is being released, and we wanted to get a better idea about what went into writing the book and how he overcame some very, very large obstacles. Aaron Volpatti, thank you so much for joining us to talk more about this. Yeah, thanks, Jill. Thanks for having me. Well, this is uh, such an amazing story that you've documented and in this book that you've put out. Take us back a little bit, if you can, and, and talk about, about what it was like first starting out. Uh, you, you start out talking about the fact that you were never supposed to play in the NHL. Uh, you then um, you suffered a, a very, very difficult battle, a fight for your life after a devastating burn. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. I grew up in Revelstoke. Uh, British Columbia, which I, I think a lot of li- listeners are probably a little more familiar with now that the the huge ski hills there. But but yeah, I mean, I was an above average hockey player in in Revelstoke, but I mean, I got cut from different select teams, and and I really wasn't that good. And that's part of the story. Is aside from this burn injury, you know, I was I guess always a long shot to to make it into pro hockey. And then when this burn injury happened, that's when those odds, you know, really got stacked against me. And 
was told that I wouldn't be playing hockey again in, in the burn unit. And that's when this journey really started for me. Do you remember that moment when you were in the burn unit, you had suffered burns to, I think it was, was it about 40% of your body? And, and they, they told you, nah, you're not going to play hockey again. Probably that, that, that you're not going to do a lot of things again. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I mean, I was 100% burnt. Uh, you know, a lot of it was first degree, but yeah, 40% second, third degree burns. And I remember after the first, you know, a couple of days were, were pretty foggy. Um, and then after my first debridement procedure, which is, uh, I don't know if we have enough time to go into the full details of what that is like, but it's, it's basically torture. Uh, you know, it's really just priming those graft sites for the, the eventual skin grafts. But yeah, I, I remember the first thing that went in that in my mind was, you know, uh, I have one more year left of eligibility here of junior hockey. And I was trying to, to get a scholarship to, to the States, to the NCAA. And I, I remember asking the doctor, you know, I have training camp in, in three or four months and what does that look like? And I'll never forget the look on his face. And he, he kind of just froze. And it was a look of, you know, this poor kid thinks he's going to play hockey again. And he really just left it as, listen, these recoveries take years, not months. Uh, you're going to be in here for a while and and you're, you're not going to be playing hockey in, in a few months here. So maybe down the road, you know, in a non-competitive type of environment, that was the dialogue. And so for me, that was it. And that was the moment I, you know, thought my career was over. So what made you then kind of find that strength or find whatever it was that drove you not only to recover from a devastating burn, but to do it and go on and prove them wrong? Yeah, so that's where this whole journey for me started. And I guess you could say one of my first uh, epiphanies or, or forks in the road, but I got a call from from my junior coach about two weeks into the hospital, my stay there. And he was talking with a coach, one of the assistant coaches from Brown university. And this is what he was relaying to me. And he, he said, the coach told him that, you know, we're looking for this type of player. And my coach said, well, I have the perfect, perfect guy for you, but you know, there's one problem. He's, he's burnt himself to a crisp and he's in the hospital and the future looks pretty, pretty uncertain, uh, to say the least. And so, he said, listen, just give him a call. So I called the assistant coach from Brown University and it was left fairly open-ended. You know, he just said, we're sorry to hear what happened. We wish you the best in recovery. And, you know, if there's ever a chance we could get to see a play down the road, like that would be great. And, you know, everyone knowing obviously where I was at and, and what the future actually looked like. But, but again, he just really wished me the best. And I remember hanging up that phone that not, I mean, my parents did. I, I was wrapped like a mummy, so I couldn't, you know, hold a phone or, or move or anything. And and that's, you know, the reason this journey started and how I discovered, uh, especially visualization and the power of that, because I remember hanging up the phone and, and getting emotional and just thinking, you know, I've, I've worked my whole life to talk to one NCAA scout. I'm 20 years old. And look where I am, you know, in this in this burn unit. And I started asking 
questions about why I couldn't play. And there was a big long list of reasons why, you know, infection was probably the biggest, uh, the, the skin grafts were going to be too, too fresh, uh, you know, too stiff, too painful. They just are slow healing by nature. I wouldn't be able to sweat from those third degree burn areas, which could have complications, you know, with increased athletic activity. Right. And I was going to be in a full body suit for, for a couple of years. So there was just this big long list and I just made a choice that, you know, those weren't good enough for me. If you're telling me that it's going to hurt, I've, I've been through, it can't be as bad as what I've been through for those first two weeks. And if I'm going to get an infection, I'll deal with it when the time comes. And really my mindset was I was willing to die before giving up on, on that dream of, of a scholarship. And, and that's when, you know, I started visualizing what I, you know, wanted to achieve with that, with that dream. I can only imagine too. People around you must have been thinking, "What? What is this guy thinking?" Like, you know, anybody in that scenario, it would be probably enough to say, "I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to recover. Not, to, I'm going to go play in the NHL." Yeah. Well, so at the time, that wasn't my mindset. Was I'm going to go play in the NHL? Because again, I didn't have a reason to to necessarily think that. I hadn't even talked to an NCAA scout, you know, so. For me, that was my, my NHL was the NCAA when I was 20. And, but yeah, you're right. The people did think I was crazy of what I was, you know, putting my body through because it was a very tumultuous and an arduous summer and, and a, filled with pain and, and setbacks. But, you know, my, especially my parents, they, I think reluctantly supported me <laughs> in this new, this new mindset and journey. And I remember the first time I, what's a memory that sticks out for me. I mean, aside from, from the many, but the first time I, I was ever wheelchaired outside was about three weeks into my stay there. And, you know, this is when the dust kind of settled. And I mean, my parents, they didn't know if I was going to survive. Right. So yeah. once the dust sort of settled and, we were able to, to move forward. We were outside one day in my wheelchair and my, my dad just said, kind of took a deep breath and was like, you know, you're going to be okay. You're going to make a full recovery. And by, but you got to remember by this time I had had that conversation with, with the coach from Brown and I had made up my mind already that I was going to go there and, and come back and play hockey. And I just remember I told my dad, you know, I'm going to be better than okay. And I'm going to go do this and no one's going to stop me. And he also had a look of, uh, <laughs> I guess, re- reluctancy on his face, similar to the doctor. But ultimately, you know, my parents have always supported me. And I, I think he wanted to tell me something different. But he said, well, then, you know, don't stop and don't stop until you call us from, from your dorm room at Brown. And, and so, yeah, they just provided a ton of support. Continuing now with former NHL player and burn survivor, Aaron Volpatti. And Aaron, I want to revisit something you said about your conversation with the coach from Brown. You were talking to him. Did he have any idea how severe your burns were, what physical state you were in? I don't think anyone fully knew the extent of what I was truly dealing with. But so, so yeah, I'd say short answer, no. Um, yeah, they just knew that I had been in a serious accident and that the future looked, you know, very uncertain, I guess, at that point. 
but yeah, I, I think short answer is no, I don't think it did. Right. I don't want to give away everything that's in the book, but people will know about your career in, in hockey and your time with the Vancouver Canucks. Do you remember the day when you got to that point and you were signing that deal? Oh, yeah, I remember it very well. Um, because, yeah, I mean, just to go back a little bit. So this didn't, the NHL didn't even come on my radar until my after my junior year at Brown when I was 24. And I had another, I guess, you know, epiphany or, or fork in the road light bulb moment where I had let that mindset slip. And I, I didn't have the wherewithal to think like, hey, if I can do this and overcome a burn injury to, to get to Brown, like what else am I capable of? And I didn't have this realization until, until that. And, and so, yeah, I basically in, in one year, I went from no one knowing who I was in the NHL at, at 24 years old to, to everyone knowing uh, when I was 25. And so I signed with Vancouver in March of, of 2010, but I should preface that with, I never told anyone about what this plan I had or about this plan I had. And, you know, I just, nothing was accomplished until I'd signed that deal. Right. And I remember I, I called my parents and I can't repeat exactly how the conversation went because there were some curse words, but my, my, my parents didn't believe me. So they, they just said, get real. What, and I just, I, I said, you know, I told you I've been talking with a couple pro teams and I've been having a good year. And they said, yeah, well, I said, well, I meant, you know, teams in the NHL. And and then that's when they said, okay, get real and expletive. And, you know, what do you really want to tell us? And, and I said, well, I just signed with the Vancouver Canucks for, for two years. And that dialogue just kind of continued where they didn't, I had to basically convince them and get them to go online and, and see the story for them to really believe me. <laughs> that, that must have been something too. You have this amazing news to tell to tell them, and they don't believe you that uh, that you're telling the truth. Yeah, well, and that was part of the story. Is they didn't really have a reason to believe me because I was, a, yeah, I just had never talked to anyone about pro hockey until I was 24 years old, and so it it really came out of out of nowhere. You could say so. And and how long did you play then until uh, another uh, accident kind of put your life in a different direction again? Yeah, yeah, I played I played professionally for five and a half years. So I split my first year between Manitoba, which was the farm team, the AHL team for the Canucks. Um, yeah, I basically split my first year there and, and Vancouver, and then from there finished up a couple more years in Vancouver and then finished in, in DC with the Capitals until 2015. Wow. And uh, Aaron, I don't, again, don't want to give everything away, but you mentioned visualization when you were in the hospital, when you were in the burn unit. And I know that's something that you still uh, talk about and try and help others with. How important was that or how kind of life changing was that? Yeah. I mean, I owe everything I, I owe my life to visualization because, I mean, it's all stemmed from the burn unit where that was all I, I had. I mean, again, I was bedridden. I All I could do was think. And before I had had this, this light bulb moment of, and 
you know, really a fork in the road where I was going to take this different direction and chase what, what I wanted and chase my dream. That was in my mind, the only way I could do that because again, I, I couldn't move and, and yeah, not to, not to give everything away, but you know, visualization has also saved my life after, after this career ending neck injury I had and, you know, personal identity crisis, other adversities that have happened and that I've dealt with, you know, uh, post hockey. And I've always had to, or not had to, but I've always gone back to what do I know? And that's the power of, of the human mind and specifically how visualization can, can really be a superpower for, for all of us. And, and yeah, it's led me to, to what I do now and, and to this book and, you know, I talk a lot about visualization in the book as well. So, yeah, I mean, again, long-winded answer, but I but I owe I owe my life to it and and to what I've been able to accomplish. Well, it uh, definitely uh, is going to to be a very interesting read. The book is called Fighter, Defying the NHL Odds, and it comes out, I believe, uh, October 25th. And Aaron, I understand as well, you're going to be uh, donating some of the the profits uh, to the Burn Fund. Yeah, yeah. So for for 54 days, which was my number in Vancouver, um, we're going to donate 40% of the profits back to the burn fund. And obviously that 40% comes from, you know, the second, third degree burns. And yeah, for me, it was just those numbers seem to line up pretty well. And and for this, for, uh, for the initiative and yeah, the burn fund is on board, obviously, and they're you know, super supportive of these different events we have lined up and we're going to you know, try and raise some money for, for this burn fund, which wasn't around when I was burnt. And, you know, it makes a huge difference for, for not only the, the burn patients, but also the families of the burn patients and for places that people can go and, and stay somewhere, you know, that's not the floor of a, of a burn unit room, <laughs> you know, right. which my parents did for, for a long time. So, yeah, it's, it's for a great cause and I'm super excited to, you know, to get this ball rolling here as of the 25th.